Welcome back to our bonus episode. Today is 44.5. And mom is going to take it away, so it's Beth-centric. It's just one Beth today. Just one Beth, <laughs> as opposed to the normal two. Um, <laughs> one B. One B. Uh, so go ahead, take it away. What do you got? Okay, well, I was looking for information for another case that I was doing for the last episode that we recorded. Mm-hmm. And while I was looking for information for that on newspapers.com, I found this case, which I've never heard of, but it happened in Oregon in 1954. Oh, an oldie. Okay. Yeah, oldie. But it lasted a long time. Hmm. This case revolves around a woman named Fern Beers, and her married name was Fern Beers Heil. Okay. She was born in Spooner, Wisconsin on December 6, 1923, to her parents, Delbert and Margaret Beers, and she had a sister named Esther and two brothers named Floyd and Delbert. These names are so classic and cute. I love it. I have a cousin named Delbert. Do you really? You know, when you look back in those older days, they all had names like that. It's so Edith classic. spelled ten different ways. Uh-huh. My grandma's name was Helen Oka. Oka. Oka was Oka was her middle name. And my great grandmother's name was Zora Alta. That was her first okay, and middle name. Okay, I didn't know. Huh. Yeah. Z to A. <laughs> Zora Alta. We need to bring these back. I'm I telling don't. you. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> Delbert and Margaret Beers were her parents, and her sister was Esther, and her two brothers were named Floyd and Delbert. Mm-hmm. As a child, her family moved to Ashland, Oregon. After finishing school, she had moved to Medford, Oregon, and she married a man named Lester Shaw, and they had one son who was also named Lester. They split up. I don't have any reasoning behind it because there wasn't a lot of information available about that kind of stuff back then. Mm -hmm. But she met another man named Hugh Orrin Heil, and they got married. So by 1954, Fern was a 31-year-old housewife, and Hugh was a 36-year-old building contractor. Their children by then were 14-year-old Lester from her first marriage, and then Hugh and Fern both had 13-year-old Judy, 11-year-old Dennis, 10-year-old Oren, whom they called Bing, and 8-year-old Carol. In the early hours of Saturday, April 24, 1954, Fern Heil had put their five children to bed on Friday night and had fallen to sleep herself. Hugh was up late typing documents related to his work. And it sounds very nice and comfortable and peaceful, but a little bit of trouble was brewing, and it had all started on Friday night, April 23rd, so the night before. Okay. About 8 p.m. Friday, 18-year-old Donald Vern Chesley from Coos Bay, Oregon, was hitchhiking on Highway 99 south of Medford. Coincidentally, there was a second man also hitchhiking in the same area. They met and they started talking. The second man, later revealed to be 24-year-old James Norman Jensen from Larkspur, California, told Chesley that he was five days released from San Quentin Prison and he was looking to make some money. Red flag. Yeah. Chesley, who also had a criminal history not as bad as the first guy, thought that sounded like a pretty good plan, so the two decided they were going to hold somebody up to make some quick cash. Jensen was the leader of the plan, as he had theft convictions going all the way back to 1945 when he would have been a teenager. The two men broke into a second-hand store called Hobbs Trading Post that night and stole five guns and some rope. They threw two of the guns away, and although they had no ammunition for the rest, they kept three of the stolen guns. 
Now Chesley and Jensen were wandering around a West Medford residential neighborhood looking for a victim to rob. At this point, they're still on foot. Mm-hmm. At around 1.30 a.m., one of them noticed a light on at the Heil household at 1200 Sunset Avenue in Medford, Oregon. The two men went up to the house, forced their way into the house, and they demanded that Hugh give them money. Hugh took out his wallet, which had $15 in it, and he gave them that. He also had a secret pocket in the wallet that concealed another $100, but he didn't offer that money. He thought if he just gave him what was in his wallet, they would go away. Yeah. The robbers made Hugh Heil lie down on the floor where they tied him up with the stolen rope. They used Hugh's own shirt to gag him. Jensen, in addition to the three guns with no ammunition, had also brought along a hatchet and also had made a makeshift weapon by putting a heavy rock into the end of a shirt sleeve and tying it up. Like those things that prisoners do with a sock and a lock. Well, he was in prison, right? Yeah, that's true. Nice. They did, like, soap and... Back then, they used whatever hard object they had. Yeah, well, I've always heard soap. Yeah. Just, like, bars of soap. Well, that would hurt real bad. It wouldn't feel good, that's for sure. I'd rather you didn't. (laughs) I would rather nobody hit me with that, please. Jesus. Okay. Jensen then proceeded to hit Hugh repeatedly with the rock in the sleeve, Mm -hmm. knocking him unconscious. After assaulting Hugh Heil... Chesley said that Jensen went into the main bedroom and found Fern Pyle sleeping in her bed. She awoke with a start, let out a scream, after which Chesley said he heard the sounds of beating. Now, take all this with a grain of salt, because the stories change a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Okay. Jensen beat Fern with both the rock in the shirt sleeve and the blunt side of the hatchet head, and he was gone, Chesley said, for about a minute and a half. When Jensen returned to the room where Hugh Heil was still on the floor... The children had started to come around to find out why their mother had screamed. The older kids demanded to know why this guy, why these guys, were in their house in the middle of the night. Jensen, still holding the hatchet in his hand, told the five children that he was a business friend of their father and they should keep quiet and ordered them all to go back to bed. Well, you know, the oldest one is 14. He's Mm -hmm. not going to fall for that. Hugh Heil started to rouse from his unconsciousness and Jensen bludgeoned him two more times with the blunt side of the hatchet. Jensen and Chesley then went out and climbed into Hugh's 1953 Mercury and started driving. Neither man knew the area, so they just drove around the city for a while and eventually ended up on Crater Lake Highway. Jensen was driving recklessly and almost drove them off the road several times. Jensen also told Chesley that he thinks he may have possibly killed Fern Heil. Of course, he didn't know her name. Mm-hmm. That turned out to be true. Fern had died almost immediately upon the brutal bludgeoning that he had inflicted upon her. After driving for some time, the car had run out of gas as it was just about 3 o'clock in the morning, and Jensen sent Chesley to go to a nearby house to get gasoline. Chesley walked to a house and woke up the homeowner to ask if they had a telephone he could use. Remember, it was 1954, and not all houses had phones, Mm -hmm. so the owner told him no, they didn't have one, and Chesley left. After failing at that house... Chesley went back to the car, and Jensen then sent him to a nearby U.S. State Forest Patrol guard station. And at 3.30 a.m., Chesley knocked on that door. Inside the guard station were Officer Dave Neville and his wife, quote, Mrs. Dave Neville. And I'm quoting that because women in the 50s didn't get to use their own names. Of course, they were the property of their husband. So, therefore, she was Mrs. Dave Neville, and who knows what her first name was. Yikes. When Officer Neville answered the door to this man, Chesley first said that he had run out of gas. But then as he stood there, he sheepishly added that he was in trouble. Mm -hmm. Neville called the operator, and in those days, to reach the police in an emergency, you most likely would have picked up the phone, dialed zero, 
When the operator came on the line, you would have told the operator which emergency service you were trying to reach. So Officer Neville dialed zero and handed the phone to Chesley. Chesley asked for the police and then he was connected. Chesley then said he had a connection to a murder that had happened and he wanted to surrender to the police. Okay. Back at the Hiles' house in Medford, the five Hiles children had seen the intruders and they were still scared. So they had also gone and called the police. 14-year-old Lester was the one who had gone in to check on his mother and found her bludgeoned to death in her bed, seeing a horrible thing that no child should ever have to see. The local police called in the sheriff's deputies and the state police to assist. When police arrived at the house, Hugh was taken to Sacred Heart Hospital for treatment of a concussion, possible skull fractures, severe cuts and lacerations to his scalp, but his doctor determined that he was in okay condition, and Fern, unfortunately, was deceased. And I say okay condition because they didn't have the same standards back then that we have now. Well, they probably didn't even realize something like concussion. You should probably keep an eye out. Like, just because they're walking around or talking doesn't mean they're... Oh, I don't think he was walking or talking. He ended up in the hospital for weeks. (sighs) Of course, they used to keep you in the hospital for three or four days for a childbirth, so... Yeah, and they also (laughs) used to... Oh, you're a little bit grumpy because you're on your period? Immediate psych ward. (laughs) Lobotomy. Let's do it. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> so. Officers investigating the Hiles attack were notified of Chesley's turning himself in. And Chesley's speech was almost totally incoherent. At first, they weren't even sure he was talking about the Hiles murder. They thought maybe he was talking about a different one somewhere else. But state police headed out to the guard station where Chesley was still waiting and took him into custody. Mrs. Neville, the guard's wife, said it was a very uncomfortable hour waiting with the man in there who just claimed that he had been part of a murder. And the state police were on their way, but they didn't know where Jensen was at this point. As far as they knew, he could have been on his way to the guardhouse, too. And they certainly didn't want him in there with them. They didn't need to be outnumbered. Once Chesley was in custody, police set up roadblocks all around the area to try to catch Jensen before he managed to find a way out of town. The abandoned car was found where it had run out of gas, but Jensen wasn't in it. At 5.30 a.m., police finally found him at a store called Wildwood, where he'd gone trying to get a drink. Because if do you murder people in the middle of the night... First thing you need to do is get up in the morning and have a drink. I mean, I probably would too, but... (laughs) Yeah, this guy. This guy. (sighs) As soon as state police descended on him, he told them that he had been released from San Quentin on April 19th, five days before, just like he had told Chesley. When Jensen was interrogated, he admitted to the robbery, but claimed to have no memory of killing Fern Heil, and I'll have a little bit more specific quotes from him later on for the things that he said to them after he was captured. The bloody hatchet was later found on a street in South Medford where they had tossed it out of the car near the location of the high school at that time, and I doubt they're still using that same high school considering it's been 67 years since then. Hopefully they have a new high school since then. The arraignments for both James Norman Jensen and Donald Chesley were set for April 29, 1954, and the two were indicted on first-degree murder charges. The district attorney, Walter Nunley, who had been with the police the night they picked up Chesley at the guard station, said that he intended to demand the death penalty for both men, even though there had been no other death penalty cases in Oregon in modern history. Yeah, that's a good point. At the time of the indictment, Hugh Heil was still hospitalized and insufficiently recovered from his injuries to even be questioned by police. But Lester, the 14-year-old son, was questioned as part of the investigation. On the 29th of April, Fern was laid to rest, with her pallbearers being men from the Medford Masonic Lodge, 
Her brother-in-law was the co-officiant at the funeral, and Hugh was still in the hospital, so I don't think he was even able to attend his Mm -hmm. wife's funeral. The plea hearing was set for May 5th, 1954, but on the 6th, attorneys representing both defendants filed what was called demurrers, claiming that the indictments for first-degree murder were faulty. The claim was that more than one crime is charged on each indictment. They contended that six crimes in all, including assault with intent to kill, larceny from a person, first-degree murder, and second-degree murder were all charged in the same indictments, and apparently they claimed these should have all been separate indictments. So the arguments went on for a couple of weeks, and that request was finally overruled by the judge at the end of May 1954. But to avoid having a future excuse to appeal any conviction, the two men were re-indicted on May 10th. Next, the defense filed quash motions against the first-degree murder charges, saying that the indictment was insufficient on technical grounds. So now, at the end of June 1954, Jensen and Chesley both pled not guilty to all charges. At the same plea hearing, their attorneys gave statutory notice of their intent to enter evidence of insanity. On July 12th, the trial date for James Norman Jensen was finally set for August. Defense asked for a change of venue, which was denied. Chesley's trial was determined to proceed immediately after the conclusion of Jensen's trial. Did they want to change just to get out of town so people would maybe less... They had a bunch of affidavits... Mm -hmm. that were signed by lawyers and some local media people saying that there was too much coverage of the case that he wouldn't be able to get a fair trial. Yeah, okay, so Mm -hmm. they thought that that would sway the jury. and Yeah, but the judge refused it because he said every affidavit you have is by a public personality or a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And if it was really going to sway the jury pool, which hadn't been selected yet, Mm-hmm. then you would have been able to get these from ordinary citizens. You would have gotten some affidavits from other people, and they didn't have any from just average citizens. So mm-hmm. that's why the judge said, I don't think they've been inordinately yeah, swayed. Mm-hmm. So that was why that was rejected. I gotcha. The jail was located above the roof of the Jackson County Courthouse. On July 28th, while he was still in custody, Donald Chesley, who was being held in a jail holding cell which had a window that looked out over the courthouse roof. Oh no, he's going to pull a Bundy. But (laughs) the roof had recently been recoated with tar. Chesley, reading a newspaper in his cell, set the newspaper on fire and pushed it out through the bars of his cell where it fell onto the fresh tar. Tar is flammable. The roof caught on fire. Other prisoners saw him do it, and he was then charged with arson. The fire was promptly extinguished by jailer Ernest Edmonds, but firefighters were annoyed because the alarm had been relayed to the fire department, and the alarm interrupted a Medford Lions Club dinner that was in progress at the main fire station. (laughs) The firefighters and equipment arrived at the courthouse to find that the fire was already out. From that point forward, Donald Chesley was not allowed to have any combustible materials in his cell, also meaning he couldn't smoke, but I assume that he was allowed to have clothing and bedding, which are combustible materials. But also, why are these prisoners having access to open flames? What, what the Because fuck? smoking was allowed in prisons for a long, 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 I long mean, time. I I know, it's just mind-boggling. It's like that in airplanes. Like, when, who was like, yeah. that's fine. Well, I actually think airplanes are worse because you're trapped well, in Well, yeah, but it's like... Yeah. God. The trial was postponed to September the 28th, and this, again, is the one for Jensen because his is first. And then it was postponed again because defense depositions had not been returned on time. When the trial for Jensen finally did begin, his original tape recorded statement from the night he was arrested was played and this is where he said a lot of incriminating things okay it included statements like 
I believe I killed her. I must have killed her. It was probably me that killed the woman. And then, I don't know. I can't remember. I'm not saying I didn't hit the woman, but I just don't remember it. I must have killed her with the hatchet. I've got blood on me. I don't even want to think about it. I've been thinking about it all day. I've been wondering about it up on the mountain, why I hit the woman. Okay, it sounds to me like you did it. It sounds like a guilty conscience. Yeah. <laughs> just... When asked about the children, because he said there were kids all over the place, Mm -hmm. they were asking, why did you kill this sleeping woman, but you didn't kill these five kids who are in there basically pestering you? Mm -hmm. And he said he didn't want to kill the children. He didn't really want to kill anyone. And he blamed Chesley for hitting Hugh Hiles with the rock in the shirt sleeve. He's now saying he didn't do that. One of the two claimed that they had gone into the bedroom looking to tie Fern up so she couldn't cause trouble with the robbery. Mm-hmm. And then they saw that she was sleeping. Chesley testified that Jensen hit Fern Heil three to four times with the rock in the sleeve and several more times with the blunt end of the hatchet. Jensen claimed it was the other way around. Okay. But there were several witnesses who gave forensic testimony, which was a little more than I expected to see in 1954. Mm-hmm. They had hair from the weapon that tied hair from Fern's head. Obviously, it wasn't DNA, but it matched the color and the consistency and the texture. Mm-hmm. So they identified it as hers. They had the shirt sleeve containing the rock that had been tied back to a shirt sold at the Hobbs Trading Post where the guns had been stolen. Okay. So the sleeve that they were using as a weapon, they found a shirt with a missing sleeve back at the trading post. Oh, so they literally just ripped off a sleeve of... No, they actually burned it off with cigarette burns. Okay. I don't know why you wouldn't rip it off. Once again, why are we giving these people (laughs) flames? Okay. They had fingerprints from the trading post and the car that they matched to both of the suspects. Hmm. Okay. They also had some eyewitnesses that had seen the suspects in the Hiles' car. And apparently they had also tried to get into another car, but they failed. So they only had the Hiles' car. There were arguments for and against insanity. The prosecution said that Jensen was normal mentally, but that he had a character defect, whereas he had no conscience. He said that Jensen was cold and unconfused. They referred to a comment Jensen had made during the investigation that he was afraid she was going to wake up and give the alarm. Well, that's a motive to me. Uh Depositions and exhibits show that over 30 psychiatrists had provided opinions over a period of several years that Jensen was psychopathic without psychosis, not insane, and that he did know the difference between right and wrong. He just had no conscience about it. On Friday, October 15, 1954, after less than two hours of deliberation, the jury came back with a verdict that James Norman Jensen was guilty without recommendation that the death penalty be removed from the penalty, meaning that the death penalty was, in this case, mandatory. Oh, okay. At that time, and remember when the DA originally said he was going to go for the death penalty, they hadn't had any other death penalty cases in a long, long, long time. But since this case had happened, there had been one other one that had been referred to a death penalty. So now Jensen was going to be the second death penalty verdict in the last 30 years. And it was basically the second one in the last six months and none before that for 30 years. Well, am I wrong or are you going to talk about this? Is Oregon one of the states where death penalty is not legal anymore? I don't know the current status. Jensen's execution date was set for January 7, 1955. Weeks later, he filed an appeal leading to an automatic stay of execution. Donald Chesley's trial date was set for December 1, 1954. The theatrics in Chesley's case were far fewer because after Jensen was sentenced to death, Chesley suddenly thought it was a good idea to plead guilty. But he didn't plead guilty to first-degree murder. He pled guilty to second-degree murder and assault and robbery while armed with a dangerous weapon. Afterwards, he was sentenced to two life terms in Oregon State Penitentiary. 
Over the next several years, Jensen's attorney appealed under every avenue available to them, but each time it was denied and the death penalty was confirmed. In March 1957, however, Oregon Governor Robert Holmes commuted the death sentence to 99 years with the possibility of parole. In November 1959, James Jensen was transferred to the hospital for the criminally insane. Don't know the answer to why, because they had previously ruled he was sane, but they did. They just did it. They They just did it. (laughs) Okay. In March 1960, an employee named Harry Draper Simons, an employee of the state mental hospital for the criminally insane, was offered $5 to help some of the patients slash prisoners escape. $5. I'm just wondering how bad the minimum wage here was, because, like, fuck's sake. It was probably, like, 25 cents in 1960. God, seriously, though. Okay. He smuggled hacksaw blades into the hospital and a package of cinnamon buns for breakfast because he felt sorry for Jensen and the other inmates at the hospital. Okay. Simons was caught after James Norman Jensen and two other inmates did escape. They had sawed a metal padlock bar off of a window screen, then cut through the top of one of the bars and made an opening a foot wide. They were slender men and they were able to squeeze through the opening and climb from the third floor, down a rope they had made of bed sheets, and drop the rest of the way to the ground. Shortly thereafter, a different employee, one who's not on the take, saw from another window that the bed sheet rope was still hanging from the third floor and sounded an alarm that there was an escape. The men had run off and burglarized an empty home nearby, and they stole three coats, a wallet, and a kitchen knife. Also, they left behind in the home, probably by accident, a red bandana with Ward 38 printed on it, alerting the homeowner that inmates had been in her house. Mm. She called police, and they started at her house and followed tracks to find the men. The escapees were tracked through snowy fields to a barn where two of them were recaptured without a struggle. They were then placed in solitary confinement at the Oregon State Prison. So I guess they lost their rights, criminally (laughs) insane rights, and headed back to the prison. The third man had walked to his parents' house and was returned to the hospital by his parents the same day. (laughs) That's such a you move. Uh, Bailey, no, you gotta go back. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, we'll go get ice cream, honey. Just get in the back. Oh, that's not the child lock. Don't worry about that. God. In 1964, Jensen asked for a new trial based on the subsequent requirement that all detained individuals must receive their Miranda warnings, which is you have the right to remain silent, you have the right to an attorney, Mm -hmm. anything you say may be used against you, etc., etc. That was not always required, and it was required after the 1954 trial. So it was like a wasn't retroactive. Exactly. It wasn't retroactive. Since that hadn't been in effect at the time of the arrest... This request for a new trial was again rejected at the end of 1967. And again in 1969, they tried to go to the Oregon Supreme Court. And again, the Supreme Court confirmed his conviction. And then both of them just disappeared from the news. There was no release date found for either of them. There was no death date found for either of them. Just poof, they just disappeared. But it was really kind of a crazy tale with all these bad decisions that they made that led to the death of this poor woman just sleeping in her bed, and then all these crazy maneuverings in court. So in the end, they were both caught. They were both punished. I did find out that Hugh remarried a woman named Dorothy Mm -hmm. a couple years after Fern's death. Well, he was only 36, right? And he had five kids to take care of. Of course, I don't know if Lester went back to his dad, but... I don't know for sure. Yeah, still. And Hugh died in 2007 at the age of 88. Wow, good for Hugh. Their son, Oren Bing, died in 1997, and I think he was only in his 50s. Mm. 
Their son, Dennis, died in 2005, and their daughter, Judy, died in 2011, but they have two children that apparently are still living. And although it doesn't really feel like an ending, that's the end of the story. Well, truth be told, when you said they just disappeared from the news, this story was so wild that I literally thought they just, <laughs> poof, went to check on them one day, <laughs> they and gone. they're just gone. We're like, we don't fucking know. We gave up. We're <laughs> We just got sick of and I was not going to be surprised if that was the case. <laughs> like, well, yep, typical guys. Yeah. So, Fern Beers Heil. That's so sad. And it's another senseless one where yeah. she didn't do anything. She All she did was she wasn't go even to bed. Awake. I she know. wasn't even awake. If they had taken the $15 that he gave them and left with the car, mm-hmm. they didn't have to beat him senseless. They could have tied him and left him on the floor. They certainly didn't have to go looking for Fern because she wasn't even awake. She had no idea they were even there. I almost wonder if there was an ulterior motive rather than just we wanted to keep her quiet. Did they say if there was anything like sexually They did in not the imply in any way that there was but anything. But I almost wonder if they would even know what to look for back then. Maybe you know, if not. she's a married woman, they might be able to be like, oh, there's semen, but she's married, you know? Yeah, the thing that makes me think not is that even though Chesley's clearly not a reliable witness, mm-hmm. if he was telling the truth about Jensen going in there and hitting her, mm-hmm. he said Jensen was only gone for a minute and a half. But no, I'm just, if she fought back or something like that, and that the only way to stop her from spreading that out into the open is to take care of her, you know what I mean? Yeah. I well, just, there wasn't any mention of just these, her being disrobed mm-hmm. or even uncovered. It's so just I, hard I, to wrap I kind of around the brutality for something unless there's more to it. You obviously, know? the guy was not just psychotic. Yeah, yeah, and psychotic, not insane, and psychotic, just evil. Mm-hmm. He was just evil. Yeah. Well, like you said, he didn't have a conscience. That's so not. Yeah. You don't. You can't really put your head in that mindset. So right. Just. That was a case that probably no one has ever heard of unless they lived in Oregon in the 1950s or 60s. Bizarre. And that's all I have for episode episode 44.5. Were you able to find any photos of her? I found one bad newspaper photo, which I will put on Instagram. Okay. Because all the photos back then were so blurry. They were just black, you know, black blobs. Mm-hmm. With a little bit of gray that kind of makes it look like there's a face there. And that was the only photo you ever took your whole life. <laughs> well, people back then didn't have as many photos, yeah. you know, obviously, because they didn't carry around phones in their pockets that had cameras on them. But they just didn't have very many. A lot of people never had anything past their graduation photos. I mean, I would be okay with that. <laughs> you never see me any older than 18. Fine. Put that in there. <laughs> I do not want people to see me at 18. I was such an awkward young adult. I'm still an awkward old adult. but That's the thing. I just get worse as I get older. So. <laughs> well, I've, I've reached a point, though, where I probably look awkward, but I don't really give a crap anymore. I've really reached a point of equilibrium mm-hmm. with my appearance. It's like, yeah, I see the things that are wrong with my appearance. I just don't give a shit anymore. See, that's how I am. I'm like, I'd rather meet most people looking my worst. Because I know at the end of the day, I clean up pretty nice. Like, that's, I can have that knowledge and that's enough to make me go into the grocery store. <laughs> like a prison escapee in theme with the, the episode. A little too in theme with the episode. <laughs> 
Oh my god. They were an escapee in every single situation possible. You really took us on a ride. <laughs> I Well, you saw how long it took me to work on that one. It took me probably twice as long as I do for normal episodes because there were so many little... Twists and turns. I had to search through the time of the murder and the trial for that, basically that whole summer. I had to search one day at a time in newspapers.com. Oh. So I went through 120 days... And then I had to go year by year after that to find out what the results were. So the escape thing was a complete surprise to me. I had no idea. <laughs> Even you were like, what? <laughs> I know. I'm like, what the hell did he do now? <laughs> <sighs> Thank you guys for tuning in for episode 44.5. We are finished. We will, as usual, be back on Friday with our normal goodie and a baddie. No, a baddie then a goodie. That's true. Okay. And a couple screams in the background. Not from us, from her. (laughs) Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Did you press play? I did. Oh, okay. Well, um. (laughs) I don't know what you're about to say. Yeah, just shut up and sit here and listen. (sighs) And that's our furnace impression. (laughs) What the fuck? I grew up in a family of normal names. Yeah. We're wandering around a west... Not Chelsea. Who the hell's Chelsea? <laughs> they had hair... Oops, I just said that. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> sleeve containing the rock that had been tied. In... I don't think I wrote this very well. <laughs> I don't know the answer. She's good. Come here, baby. I, knew she's... I saw the look. <laughs> she's like, I'm sick of their bullshit. Come here. She just stands so far out of reach. I can't get you. I lure her in by not moving my arm. Just do the dead <laughs> arm move. All right, can I go? Yeah. He smuggled back. He hugged. He huggled Blacksmar. Do you know when? This is like. Sometime between 1954 and 1964. I don't know why I thought the Miranda rights were like a 90s thing. Well, this went a lot farther than I thought it was going to. I know. To. At no point have I known in the story what's going to happen next. <laughs> Not nicer. <laughs> okay. I don't hope you enjoyed it because that would just be mean. I don't know. I would be kind of embarrassed if after all of these escape attempts, I still let them escape like the 17th time. It would be the second time. Well, those are just the ones that we've heard about. <laughs> <laughs> what are you giggling about now? You're just talking. I'm like, ah! <laughs> Couple screams in the background. <laughs> or maybe they really did just escape. Who knows?